Hello and welcome back to this podcast from the Royal College of Anaesthetists, preparing for CCT and beyond. I'm Dr Sarah Muldoon, Member of College Council representing anaesthetists in training and I'm joined again by Dr Hamish McClure, Chair of the College National Clinical Directors Executive and Dr Shan Jagger, College Clinical Lead for Appointment Advisory Committee Assessors. In this final part, we discuss the consultant application and interview process and end with some advice for preparing for your first few months as a consultant. So say we have found the job that we're interested in and we want to apply, um, what advice would you both have for preparing applications with a view to getting shortlisted? Shan, what would you say? Yeah, so I think it's really important to read the job description and the person specification and look at what they want because you if it's something that you really want it is likely you've got what they need but when people are reading through lots of often very long applications the thing designed to put them to sleep is just a whole host of knowledge that doesn't appear to relate to the job that you're applying for so really read the job description and the person specification and when you're filling in the application fill it in appropriately we all think about that when we're writing exams and things like that and we prepare for six months or a year for an exam and then the job that we want to get for the rest of our life that if someone else gets it <coughs> come up again we prepare for for a couple of weeks and that just seems madness to me you want to prepare early and read the questions and answer the questions as given what do you think Hamish I think that's such good advice that you should treat it as as you did any other exam it's exactly is exactly the same so so you know you should be building a portfolio of of useful information uh, you know useful articles and so on i ha i had a folder which i put you know articles from the bmj and the and the uh, bja in and uh, you know that that sort of thing i think is is invaluable so you've got sort of some reference material and you can revise from before it um and that's also getting in the same way you get viva practice you should get as much interview practice as possible um, you know, try and get. Um, there's lots of uh, folk who've done interviews for for, for consultant jobs around. Uh, try and get as many of them as possible to uh, to put you through your paces, just so that you're comfortable uh, uh, answering that sort of question. In terms of the application form, um, I, I, as a busy clinical manager, I don't have time to read a, a really long form, and it, it'll start to get me irritated. So just you know, keep it brief, keep it focused to the job spec. Um, I think, uh, as Sean said, I think that's a fantastic piece of advice. So uh, you know, if you and if you want to use bullet points, great. You can you know, then they, whoever reads it can get the information they need quickly. Great, thanks both of you. Sean, would you like to come back with any further comments? So I think what Hamish said about getting practice for interviews is absolutely vital, uh, and one of the things that you really need to think about is thinking about how you would answer questions about a trust's values, because you will definitely 
definitely have a question about their values or something like that. And they won't want you to just waffle about, oh, yes, I'm always kind. I've sat on committees where uh, people have said, tell me, if I came to watch you at work, how could I tell you were kind? It is one of our important values. And, oh, well, because I am, just doesn't really cut the mustard. So you really need to look at the values that the places you are thinking of working for are interested in. And that's what all those higher modules about team working are all about. And you need to get used to talking about them and talking about how you fulfill that criteria. That I have to say it was something I found really stressful preparing for the sort of content I thought would come up in a consultant interview because it felt so alien to everything that I'd been learning and preparing both for FRCA exams and for clinical practice and it felt like this surprise extra topic at the end of training. Um, so what are the other things you need to prepare for? Tr covering the trust values was great. What else do people need to read and be aware of? What NHS politics do you need to know about Hamish? So um, before you go to the broader NHS, I think looking at the trust itself that you're applying to. So so get go to the website. There's an invaluable source of, of information on that. Uh, read the board report, the quality report. These are the big sort of summary documents that will have a lot of information about the trust. It will often detail what their problems and issues have been. Um, it'll tell you what their finance state has been. Uh, tell you what some of their um, where some of their risks ha have have occurred. Uh, tell you about movements that you know if they're going undergoing a clinical service reconfiguration, then then that will often be detailed there. So I I would go to the um, to the to the internet and uh, uh, and get that. And, and as Sean said, finding the trust values is is useful because it they they come up in nearly every interview in some in some way. The trust will often have goals and a mission statement. I think uh, I mean you you may have a, a view on those, but but you absolutely have to know um, when you um, uh, when you go for an interview. And then I would just do in terms of your sort of broader NHS uh, knowledge. I think you can get a lot of that from reading the um, the the BMJ. There's there's commentary in in the BJA in anaesthesia. There's all sorts of those sources of information. You know, not the not the how much profile do I give sources of information, but in the telling you a little bit about what's happening in the healthcare landscape. And, and as you say, it's often stuff which the trainees don't know anything about, but the locum consultants will know something about because they're things that have impacted on them. And that's another way that doing a locum job can often be quite useful um, coming yeah. into a uh, substantive interview. Some really good advice I got from a senior consultant colleague was to make sure one of the final things I read before the interview was to reread the job description and the person specification because mm -hmm. it was full of clues about what sort of trust it was, what priorities it had and mm -hmm. what services they were looking to build on and develop. Yeah, good advice. And who, who are we going to meet on an interview panel? Does it vary greatly if it's a locum or a substantive position? Yeah, so so they often vary enormously. So for a locum job, it might just be um, a lead clinician and a senior consultant. You know, that might all it is, and, and sometimes a, a, with a, a loudspeaker phone conversation. Um, for a, a substantive post, there'll be there'll be more of a crowd, uh, and and it, it's much more of an event. 
in terms of the people that will be there, there'll be a chairman who's often one of the non-executive directors of the organisation. And then they will introduce you to the to the members of the panel and then often start to with a, um, a college representative who, who will talk a little bit about your um, about the um, uh, your past training. Uh, then there'll be uh, often uh, if it's a, a teaching hospital, you might have a university rep followed by a uh, senior clinician that might be a league, league clinician, uh, then uh, often a clinical director. Um, and then a, a medical director or a medical director's representative and finally a representative of the chief executive. And they all have a different remit in terms of what they're going to ask you, um, but the questions are, are quite predictable often. So the, um, the, the college rep will, will often ask you to summarise your training and maybe tell you about the highs and lows, maybe ask you to say which bits of your training went well, uh, maybe ask you about which of the trainings do you, you wasn't quite as good. And if you do get asked that, remember that the supplementary question is always, so what did you do about it? Yeah. Um, the university rep, if they're there, will often ask about uh, research, why it's important to the trust uh, and training, what you experience the training and particularly undergraduate training. And then you move on to the clinician who will who will perhaps give you a clinical scenario. Uh, just to put you through your paces in terms of of your clinical knowledge, and it's often something that's a bit controversial. You know, it's a it's a quiet Sunday, and a a colleague wants to do an elective colorectal case. You know, what do you what do you do about that? Um, the clinical director then may uh, ask uh, a um, governance question, uh, and then the medical director will ask often something about the trust. You know, do you understand where the trust sits? Uh, what the trust priorities are and then find the chief exec often is talking about about the NHS landscape as a whole. So they're, they're fairly predictable in the terms of the sorts of questions that each member of the panel will ask and it's good to have stock answers for them so so you can just roll them out and you know that that tell me about your career you know you should have a um, a tight two minutes but you know that, uh, that tells you all the highlights of your career and be positive positive positive. You know, this is not the time for you to start whinging about the programme. Um, and this is this is the time for you to sparkle with positivity. Shan, as a college rep or properly known as an appointments advisory committee assessor, would you echo Hamish's review of an interview process? I absolutely would. I think that's exactly what happens. I think sometimes there's an extra bit that people get very twitched about. They may have been asked to go to a pre-interview session uh, or sometimes fill in some form of psychological sorting tool. And I always say to people, it's a sorting tool, not a test. As doctors, we know it's a test. We're going to fail our psychological profile. That's just not the case. It's a sorting tool. Um, but when you get to interview for the panel, they have to decide before before any candidate comes in, how those pre-interview things are going to be assessed, what effect they have on the process. And the college rep needs to make sure that those decisions are taken before the interview process starts, if the chair doesn't. The chair usually will, but the college rep is there to make sure that that happens. When the college rep asks the question, it is about the training, 
but again, really important to listen to how the question is put. You're going to have your type two minutes, but you need to answer the question because the information will be the same, but it needs to be put slightly differently. If I, for example, say, why do you want this job? You want it because it has all the clinical supporting and social activities that are appropriate to you. Why should we appoint you? I have all the clinical supporting and social things that you have asked for in your job description. It's exactly the same information, but just slightly tweaked so that you answer the question as asked. Yeah, I prepared various versions of the same thing with different introductory statements, depending on how they phrased the question. Mm -hmm. right. and, and every candidate has to get the same question. That's sorted out before the interview starts. But if there's something you want to tell them, if you leave something hanging, you're allowed supplementary questions. So if you can in the heat of the moment it's good to encourage the supplementary question that you want to answer that says good things about you am i right in saying that a foundation trust can alter this process slightly so a foundation trust doesn't have to have a college rep however almost all of them choose to have one and they almost all choose to have it, um, the job descriptions and the person specifications checked by colleagues as well. Okay. So although it's not a legal requirement as it, as it is for non-foundation trusts, the reality is most of them want it. And Hamish, should candidates treat a locum interview as seriously as they would treat a substantive interview? I think most don't. Um, but I think it's really excellent practice. And, you know, it's likely that you're going to be going for a substantive interview at some point. So it's so it's a, it's a really good exercise in terms of um, getting your preparation right and seeing uh, you know how you need to change that for, for, the, for the substantive post. So I would take it every bit as seriously. And also, you know, the last thing you want to do is to is to go for a job and not get it. So so you should uh, you should do as much preparation as, as, as you can. I mean, I think the the, some of the locum jobs are, are are sometimes fairly informal things, but but uh, you should still, from your point of view, take it seriously and uh, and do the preparation. It's good practice. What about pre-interview visits? Is that something that you would encourage people to get in touch with the members of the interview panel and meet them beforehand? Yeah, I, I would. We we used to call these informal visits, and there's nothing. It is it, it's there is no such thing as an informal visit before a um, before uh, one of these interview panels there. They're all catwalks. They're all, you know, a chance for you to um, to 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 uh, present yourself in the best possible way. So, you know, um, I think going to see the, the people on the interview panel, um, contact them beforehand and ask if they will see you. They may not, uh, and don't be disappointed by that. That if they don't see you, then the chances are they don't see anybody. Um, but you certainly you need to speak to the um, to the clinicians from your department from that department who are, who are going to be on the panel. Um, I think it's quite useful to 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 give them this this the CV just as a little aid memoir about you and 
and you don't need to go through it with them, but just to give it to them so that they've uh, they've got a copy of it. And people worry about what to ask. I think the the questions are really simple. You ask them what do they want? What do the what what do they want from this job? And um, what do they see as the issues facing the successful applicant? Uh, they should and that should be them telling you what they're going to ask you in the interview, uh, because that should be about the uh, they should be about the same thing. So. So, so ask the, the what they what they want from the new candidate and what they see as the um, as as the problems within within the department and within the trust. Yeah, I was certainly advised it wasn't a time for me to be talking. It was a time for me to ask a couple of key questions and then listen. You're both nodding vigorously, Shan. Absolutely. You agree? <laughs> Absolutely. Absolutely. You know. Absolutely. Uh, I mean, your time your time for talking is in the interview. This is the time where you can get information from them and the more information you can get from them, the better. So I often think it's a good thing to ask what's the best thing about working in the department? What's the worst thing about the department? What do they want from the successful candidate? What would they really not want from the successful candidate? <laughs> And what about those people who are a bit more alien to us? What about the people who are a medical director or are from the trust executive? Do we see them? What do we ask them about? I would ask them almost exactly the same questions. You'll get different answers because what the clinical lead wants from the consultant may well be very different than what the chief executive wants from the uh, successful applicant but you don't want to feel you've got too many questions that you have to remember there are a key set of questions and ask as many people as you can what they want mm -hmm. yeah i think it's i think that's really important sean the, and the you know asking the chief exec what the problems are and um and also asking them a little bit about the values you know how did how did you put the values together you know tell me a little bit about that um, because that's uh, that that process is is you know is something that uh, that most trainees haven't had to do, and uh, and it feels very alien as you said before. So um, so I think yeah that's a good chance to to uh, do a face presentation and get them to know you a little bit. Yeah, that's a great idea. Great, thank you both. That was lots of really helpful advice. Um, certainly for me, when I successfully got a job, it felt like I'd sort of limped, exhausted over a finish line and I was vastly relieved to put everything associated with training behind me. Um, but what's next? What does somebody like me who's six weeks into their first consultant job have to be thinking about next? That's a really good, really good question. Um, so it's a big jump going from being a trainee to being a consultant and you um, you think you've got the medicine and the anaesthesia pretty well sorted and then suddenly you're handed this huge level of responsibility and it just is a, I just found it a really stressful period and just coming to terms with um, with thinking that the buck stopped with me of course it didn't uh, and you know it, it I, I had to realize that I can still ask all my colleagues my new consultant colleagues for advice you, you don't need to think you're the finished product uh, when you start on your first day as a, as a consultant uh, I, and I would really just try and settle in you know get used to the to the pace of the clinical work don't take on too much stuff additional stuff too early 
try and sit in your job plan for a while and, and see whether it suits you. Some people arrive and immediately want to start changing sessions and, and that that would just, I mean, it, speaking personally, I just found that very irritating. Um, and, um, you know, it's better, I, I always like people to do their, their job plan for a couple of years before we started swapping things around. I mean, there may be good reasons why that's not possible, but um, but 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 I would try and settle into your job plan and just okay. to get used to being a consultant. And in general terms, how much is job planning a two-way street and how much is it the clinical director dictating what you'll be doing? Is there room for a sort of personal preference from the newly appointed consultant? Yeah, as I say, I, I mean, I think you need to settle in a bit. Um, you know, you, your clinical director, uh, I mean, it's a, it should be a sort of, um, you know, they're there to look after you, they're there to support you. And um, if there's some part of your job plan that just doesn't work for you, then then fine. Then then that has to be discussed and possibly changed. And um, I, I would, you know, flag things up relatively early. It's good. Uh, I think, Sean, you you were going to talk about about mentorship. I think having a mentor at this stage is really important. Somebody you can go to to talk about these sorts of things. Yes, I think that's really really important. You know, it's really, it's, it's one of the most challenging times in your career. And all of a sudden, you don't have an educational supervisor there standing next to you. So having a mentor, and most departments now will automatically organise a mentorship scheme for new consultants because they appreciate how helpful that can be. You know, a department wants to help you settle in, but you're going to have challenges and there will be clinical challenges, but they're often not the most difficult because as we've said before, often we've been trained to within an inch of our life in terms of the clinical bit of the job, but actually a huge proportion of the job is other things that you may not have spent so much time focusing on and so talking those things through with your mentor so that you've thought about it before you jump in it's really tempting when someone asks you to do something to go yes mm. you know i think that's good advice often, for life in general shan <laughs> <laughs> often you see something that a department wants doing but gets given to a new consultant and it doesn't quite get done it gets given because they said yes and then they get oh well, I can't manage that so it give, gets given to the next new consultant and the next new consultant and the next new consultant and that's not good for the new consultant or for the department because the new consultant now feels they failed and the department doesn't get something that they wanted achieved, achieved. So talking through things with your mentor before you agree to do something, I think is really sensible. And it also allows you to stop saying yes to everything. Otherwise you'll end up with a pile much higher than the pile you thought you had for your final FRCA when you're even more stressed than you were then. 
Thanks, that really resonates what you said about the lack of an educational supervisor. That's something I've noticed so quickly. I have this almost pathological desire to offload to somebody more senior what I've been up to and my thoughts and feelings about it. So I think finding a mentor is a really, really good advice. Thank you. Mm. And not to end on a dry note, but at what point, Hamish, when a new consultant's in post, do they start having to look towards appraisals and revalidations? Yeah, it's a good question. So, so as part of the um, your induction, uh, lots of trusts now will give you what's what they call a sort of mini a mini appraisal, and that's just a very sort of quick chat with one, either an appraisal lead or with one of the appraisal admin staff that just sort of gets you on board and gets you on the books, um, and they at that point will set an appraisal date for you, and it's normally in sort of six months to a year. Um, to enable you to have done a bit of work in the organisation and got a bit of supporting information to support your appraisal. Uh, you don't need to worry too much about revalidation because if you if you just finished a training scheme, you should have done everything that you need uh, up until that point to be recommended for revalidation. And then, and then, then depending on when your revalidation date is, uh, just follow the advice about getting your appraisals done on time. Uh, if you have any trouble using the appraisal toolkit, which the, which the organisation has, then speak to your appraisal admin team and they'll be able to guide you. What I would say with that is don't leave it and, and assume it will just happen on its own because it won't. And if you miss an appraisal, it, it just creates a bit of a headache for you at a later stage. So so get on with it so you know what's what you need to do, but um, uh, but there should be support for you to do it. Thank you both very much for your time. You shared lots of practical advice, which I hope will be of benefit to those who are in the position now that I was in this time last year. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you, Sarah. And just the, I think the thing you all have to remember is enjoy it as well. You know, this is something you've been working for. So enjoy it. Thanks, Jan. Thank you. That was a positive note to end on from Shan Jagger, though I know I found it difficult to enjoy the process at the time. I'm very grateful to both Shan and Hamish for sharing their advice and hope you have gained some helpful insights from listening to our podcast. Thank you for listening to this RCOA podcast. Make sure you don't miss out on the latest episodes by clicking subscribe on your favourite podcatcher. Also, if you enjoyed this episode, please make sure you give us a review. It helps others find our podcast. And finally, if you would like to access more podcasts as well as videos, e-learning, webinars and our programme of events and courses, you can find them all online at rcoa.ac.uk forward slash education. We hope to see you again soon.